So Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it become as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter, the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go through on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to, de to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Well, let's uh, come before God in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we just do pray now that you would um, implant your word in our minds and our hearts, that we would be people who live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. I wonder what kind of leaders do you think are leaders who are worth following? How about leaders who are committed to things which are really good and that they're actually willing to suffer for those things that they're committed to? That's good leadership, isn't it? That's leadership that's worth following. I think of people like uh, Aung San Suu Kyi who for the sake of her commitment to democracy in Burma, has uh, suffered from 15 years of imprisonment and house arrest. I think of people like Nelson Mandela, uh, 27 years in a prison cell because of his commitment to equality, to racial equality in South Africa. Now, thankfully, the vast majority of 
good leaders don't have to suffer like that for the sake of the cause that they're committed to. Um, but um, people who do are inspirational, aren't they? They're the kind of people who we, we want to follow, we want to also be committed to what they're committed to because they've got the credibility factor, because they've, they've laid their lives on the line, they've been prepared to suffer for that which is right. Now, as Christians, we are encouraged when our Christian leaders are seen to be people who are standing firm for the gospel, even when to do so is costly for them. And now, thankfully, in Australia, uh, we don't usually see Christian leaders being put on trial and imprisoned for what they're committed to. But uh, from time to time, we do see trial by media, don't we? And uh, there are occasions, and it often happens around in the, in the weeks ahead of us now, in, le in the lead-up to Easter, where uh, Christian leaders are uh, given the public spotlight and uh, they have the opportunity to say something about Easter, to say something about what is really germane to the, uh, the Christian gospel. And it's in that situation that they've, they've got choices. The gospel, when it's faithfully taught, does cause offence. And so the choice is that you can, be, you can avoid criticism by compromising the gospel or uh, you can clearly but graciously uh, proclaim the gospel knowing that you may very well be criticised for doing so. Now... Which of those two models do you find more inspir inspirational, more encouraging? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, he was in chains. And that because of his commitment to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul suffered imprisonment uh, a number of times during his ministry and uh, he was imprisoned in a variety of different places. But when we turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you'd like to do that now, in Philippians chapter 1, we'll notice that uh, in verses uh, 13 and 14, when he talks about the fact that he is in chains, he, he mentions that he's in prison, but he doesn't actually say where uh, the prison is. Now, uh, it was not a secret the Philippians would have known where Paul was, but, uh, and I suppose because of that, he doesn't really need to mention it in the letter that he's writing to them. But it's helpful for us to uh, think about where Paul may well have been in prison uh, at the time. And indeed, when we uh, look through Philippians as a letter, we see that there are some hints. For example, uh, in verse 13, he says that the whole palace guard knows why he's in custody. Uh, in other translations, it says the whole praetorium guard uh, knows uh, why he's in custody. Uh, if you flip over to the back of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 4, <clears throat> right at the very end, uh, in uh, verse 22, uh, he says to the Philippians... All the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to the household of, of Caesar. 
to Caesar's household. Now, where do you think that he might be writing from in that case? Well, one of the places Paul was imprisoned was Rome. Now, uh, in Acts chapter 21, Paul was in Jerusalem and he was accused by some Jews who had not believed the gospel. Uh, They accused him of speaking against the law of Moses and they accused him of defiling the temple. And what they did was they, they stirred up the crowd so that people were angry with Paul and the crowd rioted and they tried to kill him and the Roman guards came in, Roman soldiers, uh, and they arrested Paul and they put him in chains and they were dragging him off to the barracks and as he was being dragged off, he had the opportunity to stand and face the crowd and to actually uh, tell them about Jesus and tell them about how uh, his testimony, how he came to know Jesus. Uh, and from then he was taken to the barracks and he was uh, put on trial. What that did was it not only put Paul in chains, but it started a chain of events uh, whereby Paul uh, was put on trial and he appealed uh, to various higher courts uh, up the chain. So that uh, in um, Acts 25, He's before the Roman governor Festus and Festus wanted to hand him back to the Jews. <clears throat> he wanted to hand him back to the Sanhedrin for the Sanhedrin to sort out uh, the issue that they had with Paul. But Paul didn't want that because he knew what the Sanhedrin would do to him. And so instead what he did was he exercised his right as a Roman citizen and he uh, declared... Uh, to the governor, I appeal to Caesar. Now, that meant that he had to therefore go to Rome. And uh, he was sent to Rome, and uh, we know that that was via a shipwreck in Malta and, and so on. But it was in Rome where Paul was in custody awaiting his trial before Caesar. Uh, and so that would have been the years in the years 60 to 62 AD, and the emperor at the time was, was Nero. Now, from what we can see in Philippians, it seems that uh, th- this is most likely where the letter is written from. It's most likely the context. And there's actually no higher court, no higher earthly court, that is, than Rome. And so this is the end of the road for Paul. This is his uh, final appeal. And so Paul knew that the outcome of the trial before Caesar would be it. It would mean either life or death. This was his final appeal. Now that sounds a bit grim. uh, Until we actually read what Paul thought about it. And we can do that because... um, He shares with us his thoughts on the matter and uh, his thoughts might have actually been a little bit uh, disappointing to his enemies back in Jerusalem because his enemies in Jerusalem, they would have been very happy that Paul was in prison because they thought that he was now out of the road. They thought that by orchestrating his arrest and his being put on trial, 
that they had suppressed the spread of the gospel. But in verses 12 to 14, Paul, writing from his prison, is aware that the exact opposite has in fact happened, that the gospel has not been suppressed. In fact, he wants the Philippian brothers and sisters to know that far from suppressing the gospel, what has happened to him has actually advanced the spread of the gospel. And we see that in a couple of ways. First of all, think about where he now resides. Uh, in Australia, we might say that he was a guest of Her Majesty, but uh, <clears throat> he's actually a guest of the Caesar of Rome, which meant that, uh, that Jesus was now on the agenda. It meant that the, the whole of the imperial guard and everyone else for that matter who was in the prison, that in verse 13 we're told that everyone knows why he is in custody. They know that this man is in prison because of Jesus. And so far from the Jesus movement being something which was in the backwaters in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and had spread through little parts of Turkey and Greece and so on, now... Uh, the Caesar would be aware of why this man was in prison and that is Jesus. Now secondly, in verse 14, Paul's imprisonment had had an impact on other Christians. You see, at any point of the, in the process of, of, of his court cases, Paul could have backed down. Uh, faced with imprisonment, faced with the potential execution, uh, Paul could have sorted the whole matter out the easy way. He could have backed down. He could have apologised for what he'd said about Jesus. He could have apologised for the trouble that he'd been stirring up around the empire. He could have promised that he'd, you know, if they let him go, that he wouldn't do it again. But he didn't, did he? What did he do? He held the line. He did not compromise the truth about Jesus. Now, no doubt, when people in the churches saw what Paul was going through, no doubt there'd be some who would say, look, if that's what being Christian is about, forget it. Um, count me out, please. I don't want to end up in trouble like Paul's in trouble. And Jesus warns us of that, doesn't he, in the parable of the sower that there are some who, when persecution and trouble comes, they just drop it, forget about it. You know, they'll just go back to living as they would otherwise. But for others, the, the witnessing of their Christian leader being prepared to suffer for the sake of that which he taught them to believe had a credibility factor to it. And it emboldened them to actually be more committed to preaching Christ, more committed to proclaiming the gospel, and that without fear. They've looked at what could potentially lie ahead of them, imprisonment and possible execution, but they fearlessly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus as a result of Paul's credibility and his imprisonment. And so what we see there is that the imprisonment of Paul has actually, far from uh, squashing the gospel being spread, it's actually caused the spread of the gospel. 
Now, that was not the only thing which was on Paul's mind. And the other issue is this. The other thing he was thinking about was that not everyone who preaches the gospel actually does so for the right reasons. Now, that might surprise you. But uh, take a look at uh, verse 15. In verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here in the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Did you see that? See, there are two different types of people who are preaching the gospel. There are some who preach Christ out of love and these people, they know that Paul is in prison because of the gospel and uh, there are others who preach Christ not out of love but rather out of envy and out of rivalry and they suppose, they don't know, they suppose, they think that they can actually stir up trouble for Paul whilst he's in prison. And when you read that, I don't know about you, but you, you think to yourself, what's this all about? I mean, what's going on here? People preaching the gospel, but not for the right reasons? Notice this. Notice that Paul doesn't say that there's this one group who preaches the true gospel and there's this other group who's preaching a false gospel. No, he doesn't say that. He only says that they both preach Christ. And so the issue here is not uh, gospel fidelity. Uh, the, go the issue here is not doctrine. The issue is motivation. Now, sadly, there are people who know the gospel and who have impeccably sound doctrine but they preach the gospel and they do ministry for their own sake. Uh, in verse 17, uh, it is not in order to save people from hell, it is not in order to see God glorified but rather they do so out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, preaching the gospel for self-purposes. And these people, they would see Paul not as a fellow worker, but rather as a competitor. And I guess they'd be glad that he's in prison because it, uh, they think he's out of action and therefore it gives them more freedom uh, to freely uh, grow their, their influence and grow their number of followers, perhaps at the expense of those who would be otherwise uh, in, uh, not influenced by them. Now, what do you think about that? Do you reckon that such people would be prepared as Paul was to go to prison for the sake of the gospel? I don't think so. Not, not if they're preaching the gospel for selfish purposes. It's the antithesis, isn't it? To actually suffer is the opposite to... Uh, being selfish and doing so for selfish reasons. So I think that we need to pray for Christian leaders, don't we? Uh, we do need to pray because there is always a temptation for 
motives to become corrupted, especially think when things are going really, really well and there is no persecution and, and things are, seem to be coming along nicely. Uh, there's this temptation to do ministry for the sake of self-worth, uh, to be thought highly of by other people. Uh, to uh, you know, to be leading the biggest, flashiest church in town, and uh, have a reputation for being a great leader in that kind of sense, and so on, uh, rather than to do ministry for the sake of saving sinners from hell and building up God's people and glorifying God. Now, it's sometimes sometimes a fine line, and it might be hard to know where that line's being being crossed. But what we do need to do is we need to be uh, mindful of that and we need to be praying for people in our church, pray for me, pray for Peter, pray for others in leadership and uh, pray for other, other Christian leaders as well that um, we would have be people who are driven by a desire to see people saved from hell and uh, to see God glorified and honoured. Now, Paul knows what's going on. He's not, he's not silly. But how does he respond to this? I mean, he's in prison. He's not, there's not much he can do about it, um, humanly speaking. So, you know, does he become all bitter and twisted about it, that there's people out there preaching the gospel from false motivations? How does he respond? Well, he, doesn't endorse, he does not endorse their sinful motives. However... He does realise that if they are preaching the gospel, then God uh, can and will use that for good. And he does so despite them. Despite them. Uh, and so Paul actually rejoices that whatever the motives, that Christ is being preached. He rejoices in that. Remember when the brothers of Joseph sold him into slavery in Egypt? Uh, they, that what, what man intended for evil, God used for, for good, to, to bring about his good purposes. Now, we'd never engineer it that way. We'd never want it to go that way. But God uses sinful human beings. Uh, he uses us despite our sin to achieve that which is good. Uh, sinful people have put Paul in prison. Uh, sinful people are preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons. Uh, but Paul is confident that God can use the actions of sinful people to achieve that which is good in terms of the salvation of others. Think about the death of Jesus on the cross. That uh, wicked and evil men nailed Jesus to the cross. It's a dreadful, sinful act. The most sin dreadful thing. Sinful act. But God used it for the salvation of all who put their trust in Jesus. Last week, 21 Egyptians working in Libya, uh, employees um, just earning a living in Libya, were singled out to be executed by ISIS because they were Christians. Did you read about that? And... Uh, uh, their, their murderers uh, videotaped them uh, as they were executed uh, by being beheaded. They were beheaded. They had their heads chopped off. Uh, 
that was videoed, put up on the internet, so that all could see. On TV this week, the brother of two of these murdered Christians uh, on television publicly thanked ISIS for releasing the video unedited. Because the last words of several of the men that can be heard on the recording were the three words, Lord Jesus Christ. Unwittingly, ISIS had broadcast their testimony to Christ around the globe. The brother also shared on television Christ about love. Not just about loving your neighbour, but he shared, he said that uh, we in Egypt have uh, been experiencing this kind of uh, persecution for the sake of being Christian since Roman times. And what we've learnt over 2,000 years is what true love is. And he said that the Bible teaches us in respect to our enemies, we love our enemies. We love ISIS. We love them. We want them to, he didn't say this, but this is what he meant. We would love to see these people come to know Christ Jesus. That's powerful, isn't it? He spoke of Christ's teaching that we should love our enemies. Easy to say, <clears throat> profoundly important when the guy has just watched his two brothers being having their heads chopped off for the sake of being Christians. What man intended for evil, God has used for good. Now in verses 10 through to 26, facing his impending trial, Paul doesn't go all wobbly at the knees, rather he stands firm. Let me read a few of those, a couple of those verses for you. Verse 18. Verse 18, he says, but what does it matter? No, go down to verse 19. He says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now the word deliverance there means salvation. Paul is not just not talking about being released from prison. He's talking about, uh, about his eternal salvation. It's a word for salvation. That's what he means. And remember the promise of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 12. Remember when Jesus said that, uh, to his disciples that when they stand on trial but be before the authorities, that they need not to be worried about what they will say because someone was going to teach them what to say. Do you remember who that someone was? Yes? It's the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, verse 12, Jesus says, do not be concerned about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will teach you the words to say. And so here, Paul is confident that when he stands on trial, that through their prayers and through the ministry of the Spirit, he goes on to say that he will have no reason to be ashamed. He will not, he is not going to back down. He is not going to be ashamed on account of having... Uh, watered down the gospel or backed down on what he believes about Jesus. He goes on to say that he will have the courage 
to stand firm for Christ and the gospel. So that whatever the verdict, whether he's acquitted or, or whether he's condemned, whatever the case, Jesus will be exalted through his body. Because friends, that's what life is all about. That's what your life is about. That's what my life is about. That's what our whole existence is about. The reason we exist is to honour God and to exalt Jesus. So that whether we live or whether we die, exalting Jesus is all that counts. And honouring him, for he has died and he has risen again. Uh, in verses 21 to 26, we see that there's a tension within Paul. This, Paul is, uh, in, I mean this in a positive sense, he's, he's conflicted. Because in one sense, he's actually looking forward to departing. Uh, he longs to depart and to go and to be with the Lord, to be with Christ forever in heaven. Because he says, well, that's actually better than this life. Better by far. Now, sometimes we're conflicted by that, aren't we? We long for heaven, but we care for people here. Paul longs for heaven, but he also wants to keep on living. Not because he fears death, but because so long as God keeps his heart beating, he wants to serve other people with the gospel. Uh, in verse 26, he'd, he'd love to have another chance to go and visit them in Philippi so that he can, he can encourage them and that their, their joy in Christ Jesus would be overflowing. There is a tension. It's a tension within Paul because Paul is committed to the idea, he understands that to live is Christ. To live means honouring Christ, ministering to people, serving them with the gospel. To live is Christ, but to die is gain, for heaven is better by far. There's the tension. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, why is Paul telling them all of this, and how is it helpful to us? It's about godly leadership. Uh, in verses 27 through to 30, we're told that life was not actually all that easy being a Christian in Philippi. Uh, in verse 28, um, the Philippian Christians, they were being opposed. Uh, in verse 30, they were going through the same troubles that they saw Paul had had and see that he is now experiencing. In other words, Paul's recipients of this letter were being persecuted because of the gospel. Now sometimes our commitment to the gospel will be tested. Um, I don't know what it's like for you necessarily, but uh, in general terms, there, there may be times when we are ridiculed um, <clears throat> or we're dismissed, perhaps by family members, perhaps by neighbours, perhaps by work colleagues or other kids at school and so on, that um, people find some of our beliefs uh, are very, very different to what um, non-Christians believe. Uh, you might be mocked because you believe in resurrection. <clears throat> you believe that when you, after death there is a resurrection to eternal life. 
Uh, you might be mocked because you believe that one day there's a day of judgment and that we're all accountable to God. You might even be mocked for believing in the very existence of God, and that's more the case nowadays, I think, that people get uh, dismissed. You know, To believe that God exists is a bit like believing that the earth is flat, that kind of thing. And when you say that you believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God, that uh, all other purported routes to God are false, that all other religions are false, then don't expect to be terribly popular. Uh, expect to be thought of as being narrow-minded and arrogant. And at these times, the last thing that, that we need when we're feeling the heat of that is for so-called Christian leaders to publicly water down the gospel in order for them to stay popular or to allegedly be connecting with the culture a bit better. But we are encouraged when other Christians, particularly those in leadership, people who have trusted in God, have held their nerve and who stuck to the gospel when to do so made them unpopular, even caused them to suffer persecution. A couple of years ago, the Costa Concordia was a ship that um, hit a rock. You remember, remember that? And then it capsized and it started to go under. What did the captain do? He jumped ship. The first officer saw the captain jump ship. What did he do? Jump ship as well. 31 lives were lost. As the passengers were just, that, that's, that's great leadership, isn't it? He was actually charged with the, the charge of not being the last person to leave a ship. <laughs> that's, that's not, you know, the gospel is not a sinking ship. But you get the point, don't you? That when we see leaders jumping overboard, uh, then that's just greatly discouraging. But when we see the leader who is prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel, then we're encouraged to keep on pressing on, being faithful ourselves. And that's why Paul is telling this, the, the Philippians his story. So that in verse 27, no matter what happens, no matter what happens to him, whether he's acquitted or whether he's condemned, no matter what happens to them, and no matter what happens to us, the thing which really matters is that under trial and under persecution that we conduct ourselves in a manner which is worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At no matter what cost, that we hold our nerve, that we remain committed, because brothers and sisters, the simple truth is this, that to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Jesus and his gospel is quite frankly all that matters when it's all said and done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus didn't back away from going to the cross, but he willingly did so for our sakes and for our salvation. 
Father, we pray that under uh, stress and trial ourselves, that we would be people who are committed to the gospel and are willing to face ridicule, uh, willing to face being dismissed by others, and uh, in the worst case scenario, willing to even lose our lives uh, for the sake of, of Christ. For we know, Lord God, that um, uh, they may be able to take our lives, but your kingdom is forever. And that can never be taken away from us because neither life nor death can separate us from your love which is found in Christ Jesus. Help us to be people who are committed to the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.